This is the second part of the eighth podcast of the Basics of Software Engineering course, and in this lecture podcast, Juha Savolainen from Nokia is going to tell us about software architecture. Okay, hello everybody. Um, my name is Juha Savolainen. Um, I come from Nokia. Uh, I've been, I have quite long history with software architecture. I've been having a pleasure of consulting, designing, analyzing, documenting, doing various roles in, in, in software architecture context. Uh, I've also been privileged to work with a lot of telecommunication systems, mobile phones, but also medical equipment, banking systems, uh, weather stations, uh, car control software, uh, various range of very different kind of systems. <clears throat> so what I'm trying to communicate here is explain something about why and when and how to document software architectures. Unfortunately, since we only have 45 minutes time, it's, it's not enough to cover everything quite well. Um, so we try to focus on some few points. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to give you great conclusions afterwards. I'm just trying to bring in up slides and see where we how, how many of those we can actually go through. Um, as you can see, I'm using the nice courier font. It's not really because I'm fond of Commodore 64, which, no, the week actually was the, my first development platform, but it's rather the lovely conversion from Macintosh to PC. Um, I think from my perspective, um, software architecture, and any design is a tool, its purpose is to make a useful representation of a system for some, for some reason. The purpose is not to make as extensive documentation of your system, nor it's make the most cryptic documentation of system. It's actually concentrating on essential parts. It's like on your Sydney Opera House, nobody's I mean, at least most people are not interested on certain surface reflection characteristics, uh, but on very detailed level. But it might be that some people are interested whether they can actually, I mean, how it does look on the sunset. Uh, so it's not about specifying everything, it's specifying the relevant parts. And the other thing is that when I started in the software architecture community in some 90s, uh, the clear point was to explain people in, in some words why they actually need software architecture. The always the thing was that people would say that, well, we don't have any documentation and we don't need it because we managed to make one system. And that still holds today in the sense that it's perfectly okay to do a system without the software architecture. It will have some structure anyhow, regardless whether you document it or decide it, but it, if it works, it fulfills its requirements, good job. Uh, so as I think Tommy pointed out already, is that it's important to understand what you want to document uh, and why you want to document it for. And in my perspective, it's about the fact to communicate things. Um, and for me, 
the less you produce as a design, as an architecture, and still manage to fulfill your requirements, the better you are off. Uh, and important thing is that if you do something, do something that the people will use. Hopefully somebody else besides you. Of course, if, if you have a small team or a small project, it might be that you are doing things for yourself, for you, you to actually understand whether the performance is okay. But in large organizations, normally do things for others. And my personal favorite is the coffee stain test. If you produce the document, you go around. If you can't find a printed form, or you can find printed form but haven't been never read, you have basically failed. You're probably done too much, or stuff that nobody really cares for. And often, especially in the previously, you tend to see telecommunication systems with software architecture documents that are 500 pages long. And then you go to software, so, software architecture review, and you have five comments totally, three of which talk about that they used the wrong template or the courier front when they, when they actually were supposed to use something else. Nobody is going to read a document more than 100 pages. They will never read it, no matter how great it is. I mean, unless you're writing Harry Potter or something. But I mean, otherwise, nobody's going to read it. So it has to be short, it has to be on the point, and it has to be something that people find useful. So that brings to the thing that architecture is a tool. It's not the goal. The purpose is not to create architecture, the purpose is to create a system that fulfills requirements. And architecture is a possible option to use to actually fulfill that, to, to manage to build such a system. So basically what I say, software architecture is, uh, it, it's, the software architecture specification is to be something that says you something about what kind of system you have, why it exists. This actually brings back to the question of, of requirements as well. Um, how does it do it? And how should we build it? And how it satisfies the key requirements? And especially I like the last bit. Um, somebody says that there will be the requirements engineers for you. Well, unfortunately, when you're, you have managed to actually build the system, and it doesn't, the customer is unhappy. They are going to blame you, the guys who created it, not the guys who said that, well, the performance has to be this. And not even that. If you have any requirement, you need to understand why. Because what will you end up in any normal industrial project? You will find out that when you start building it, your requirements are some, some of them are unspecified. It's really difficult to understand what, what is actually required. Mostly they are non-prioritized. People want way too many requirements that you can in any way build in the time that is required for um, research for the, for the project in hand. Um, and they meet, lack the key rationale. So you might have a requirement of that you have to fulfill a certain amount of requests per minute, but they don't, might not actually tell you why. And they are typically missing key requirements. They assume you think you actually know it. So if you, if you are building a telecommunication system, 
they tell you about a lot about what kind of functionality it might have, but they might not tell you that, in fact, in the future, there has to be multiple operators using the same telecommunication equipment. And does somebody know it? Yes, the marketing manager does, or has an idea. But if you don't know it as an architect, they're going to anyhow blame you for it. Because people always expect that because it's software, you can adapt it to anything. And unfortunately, that's not the case. Because excess flexibility requi requires a lot of, it increases the complexity, as Tommy said, but it also requires more processing power, it requires more memory. And and the fun thing is that I remember when I was really, really young, uh, when you did I mean, Commodore 64 programming, it was very natural that you couldn't fit everything to a memory, right? And when in the start of mobile phone programming, it was pretty much the same. But now you also think that, well, who cares about memory, right? Who has programmed anything in the past five years and thought about whether it fits into memory? Anyone? You. Great. Excellent. One person. What will surprise most of you is that when you start thinking of large-scale commercial consumer products, what, it doesn't really matter what it is. Let's take a mobile phone. If you happen to build 500 million of them every year, and if you can reuse a tiny amount of onboard memory that you put, you might reduce, well, one euro of cost of a phone. With that one euro, well, you actually saved 500 million euros. So even though you can, yeah, can you build the phone with 10 terabytes of memory? Probably you can, but it's not economically viable. So there are many other reasons for, I mean, not putting excess flexibility, not putting excess functionality, but being actually, actually being able to reduce the cost of your hardware, for example. Okay, so Tommy talked about architectural significant decisions. Uh, I like to talk about architectural significant requirements. So software architecture, as any design, is an optimization problem. Nobody's going to tell you, I mean, even though you have very re important requirements, um, there's not one requirement that will always rule everything. And that's because what Tommy said is that you always need some level of performance, you always need some level of reliability. I mean, even if you build throwaway products, if it never works, people will be unhappy. So it's, it's ability to actually balance these aspects. What it means is that there's no optimum solution. Every solution is, is some way better than another solution, but it's also inferior to other solutions. So any other architect can propose any other solutions, and there's no obvious way to say that this one is better, which means that it's software architecture and most of the design are very easy to critique. So you can always find some aspect where it's not optimal because it just can't be that way. Uh, and what are those factors? So it's not only the requirements for the product, but it's also business factors. So what is your development schedule? So if you are, have to, if you have, you, if you are in a startup, you know you will run out of money in one year. 
if it will take one year to make the product, you're late, you failed, regardless how great the product is. So you might be able to sell your company to somebody with less value if you are really, really lucky, but in practice you need to produce something in half a year or two months. And in that case, it might be the overriding factor. So you might have to be forced to do something that you know it, will be, it won't be scale up, for example. You're producing a website and you know that if you have 200,000 200, simultaneous users, it will not work. But if you're in a startup, it's a good problem. Because then you have these 200,000 users. Then you're like almost one already, right? So, so you need to be able to understand those issues. What will make this successful and what will make it not successful? What will fail it? So definitely you need something to understand the development schedule. You need to understand budget, how many people you have, what they can actually do. So if you have 20 guys who know something, you have to adapt what you are going to build with their capabilities. Then the other things like technological factors. Uh, you, if you are building a weather observation system in the middle of forest, you might have to rely on battery or solar power. You are limited to power. You might be limited about uh, communication capabilities. You might have various hardware uh, aspects. You might be forced to use a certain piece of equipment. Or you might be forced to use, if you are coding for IBM, I think you have to use WebSphere, whatever you like. Uh, and then there are the things that we already talked about, which are the product aspects, which you have to understand the, how much you have to be able to extend it, what kind of requirements I have for now, but also what kind of requirements I have for the future. And this is the balancing act that you have. You have all these things and you have to figure out what kind of design will I produce. Um, but of course, what we have is that in typical ways, if you have a lot of experience in a domain, you are doing evolutionary products. So in a sense, in many industrial contexts, all this is really important, but what might be even much more important is what you got. So if you have your mobile phone, you have the, I mean, I, I guess the current mobile phones are about the same number of lines of code than the Windows XP had, Service Pack 3. So there, it's not an option to write everything from scratch. That's what you got, so you basically, what you are living in is that you have all these concerns and you have to somehow transform what you got to the state that you want to be. And so the, the existing resources and existing software can be actually quite important. So taking all those factors, software architecture is a tool for risk management. And as Tommy said, is, is you need to be able to somehow to identify what are the risky things. And my personal favorite, how I describe it, is what prevents you to sleep at night? Because there are a lot of risky things in life, but when you are building a system, let's say that this would be, tomorrow would be the first date that everybody would be using it. What other things, what you will be worried throughout the night? Those are the things that you need soft, typically software architecture for. The other reason, in, in large organization is that there's enough people. So I mean, if, if you have, like, I'm 
doing a, a small service with a couple of my colleagues. Do we need a software architecture? No. Have I drawn any pictures about the service? No, I haven't. Because every time we have an idea or we need to discuss, I go to his room and then we can like share with our colleagues. So we have constant understanding of the state of the system, which is okay. But if you happen to have hundreds of people, you can't do that. It doesn't work anymore. Then you eventually need some kind of description of your system. Okay, so if it's risk management, what do you have to do? You have to understand the risk. So what are those requirements that are, uh, can keep you into a trouble? And you have to have a way to manage the risk. But it doesn't have to necessarily be the software architecture documentation or design or whatever, or even performance validation. It can be something else. So you might actually decide that, well, let's have weekly meetings instead of producing this picture. Um, uh, and um, the real thing is to understand what to do. What to do. If, if you decide to make a software architecture description, what should it contain? And, and that's the real change. I think the previously nobody know why, why to have a software architecture. Now everybody in most of the companies have software architects and they have software architecture documents. But when you ask you why you do it, it's because the process says you have to do one. And of course that's completely useless. So you need to actually identify what should you do? What should it contain? And for this purpose, I wanted to show a kind of like completely different kinds of architectures that you might have. Um, the first one, this is the traditional one, would I say. So what do we have here? Um, we seem to have some kind of structural representation of our system. Uh, and the important part, though, this is the normal thing that you have in any books that you happen to browse. So you will find an architecture of existing system. You have a system. This is the representation of the architecture. What does it actually say? It, it seems to say that one, one of the key concepts in architecture, as, as Tommy said, was there's some kind of abstraction mechanism, which typically means is that behind one abstraction level you have something else. And here basically we have containment. So there's a component which is actually have some kind of internal structure of other components. And this is, again, a very typical one because it shows structure of the system. This is the, the most typical of all architectures. Uh, great. Uh, of course, in some sense, what would you learn of that picture? Well, to tell the truth, not much. If, if you think about your requirements, well, what you learned is that there definitely are three components within this one system component. There seems to be some ports, but there's nothing about requirements in this picture, right? You might be able to easily use it for work division. You might say that this side will work on our service, service C. Uh, these few guys in the middle will work maybe for the service B, and the rest of you, you will work for service A. Then you actually know what you're working for. Right? That would be one possible reason to have something like that. But of course, you can more specific specify others. Now the question is, what kind of architecture is this? Hmm. So this is what I normally call type architecture. 
somebody might say that this is just a conceptual model. These guys would be actually true. That it is a conceptual model. By the way, you can't really see it very well. But what it actually says is that there are some concepts which have some relationships with each other. Now the real question is why this is an architecture? Well, you could build such a model to somehow say what kind of elements or types you have on your concrete architectures. So this is, this is not an architecture in a sense that you normally see in the books, but it's just a representing of what kind of types or elements you can use when you describe one architecture. Oh. For most people, this is uh, not something that they regularly see in the books of software architecture. It might be something in a, see in the books of requirements analysis or conceptual modeling or ER modeling. Um, but this is something you, you might end up with. Uh, the one of the weirdest ways is that you might have an architecture that would, I would call a constraint architecture. What a constraint architecture does, it seems to somehow limit your choices. So it's not the representation of an existing, not necessary representation of existing system, but rather says what kind of systems you can build within this context. So in this case, it seems to say that we have two layers, and layer seems to be some kind of collection of possibly some kind of subsystems, and there's a relationship defined between those layers which says is allowed to use, which means that elements belonging to this layer can use elements in this layer. And the implicit assumption is that the otherwise is not true. So elements can't use the other elements on the other side. That's another additional architecture. Uh, why would we like to use them? The real reason is that there are a lot of different roles or reasons for having the architectures. So the instance architecture zone first is something that you normally use when you're actually architecting a system. So, or you have a system and you want to document it for the later generations, for your glorious efforts in software design. Uh, and typically it's, it's, it's an abstracted version of design and hopefully focusing on those architecture significant requirements. But on the other hand, the type architecture is something that you can use for many purposes. First of all, if you have any instance architecture, you need to know what are those elements? What does a component mean in your system? What does a event bus mean? Without defining what they mean, it's, it's pretty meaningless. On the other hand, if you have, happen to function as a chief architect, so there has to actually is a range of architects under you who are actually working for some parts of the system, you might be actually willing to define those terms, what it means for our system. So you will actually say something like, well, uh, or we build components. Components are executable elements which run in one processor and one processor only, and all components will communicate using the event bus. Why would you like to say something like that? Well, maybe the event bus is something that allows you distributed computing, for example. 
So that's your solution to the problem of being able to distribute computation to different elements. And maybe if you have a large development organization, you have to also be able to scale up. And that might be your solution. So you might want to actually create a type architecture. You tell what kind of concept, constructs you have. And for constraint architecture, that might be something that you actually express your architecture decisions. So the layer picture that I have, that might be one of your architecture decisions you made. So you basically might be that one of the reasons that you want to do this is reusability. You identify that for, for the number of radio standards, and each of them need a lot of services. So what you actually want to say is that, well, I don't want to make power management for each of the standards. I make a generic power management that doesn't care about which standard is used, and then I separate all the standard-dependent software on the upper layer. And to make it work, I prevent these generic services to actually directly using the service-dependent services so I can easily make the reusability happening. And this is actually, this constraint architecture is something that you can do to actually connect your architecture's significant requirements with might be reusability against the different uh, radio standards and your solution. And that's what the architecture is about. It's identifying the key requirement, finding out the solution, and bringing them together. And for this reason, I don't believe ability to separate requirements engineering and software architecture. Because requirements are the reasons for the software architecture, and the software architecture is the, kind of like the explanation or the solution for the requirements. So if you're an architect and you don't understand requirements, you are in a really, really deep trouble. So I would at least recommend to somehow participate on that requirements gathering evaluation process. Good. So these were the different architectures. Uh, how, you, how they can exhibit themselves is that, well, you can have different pictures, uh, you can have multiple documents, but normally people in architecture community talk about different architecture views. So you have a thing that you want to describe and then you create a different kind of representations of that thing. So, and the real key here is that how to decide which kind of representation you need, what kind of views I need for this architecture, how to describe them, and the real tough part, how you can guarantee that they actually represent the same thing. Because when you actually make multiple different views, very easily it can happen that you are so in love with that particular view that you don't remember that this should actually represent one thing. So basically what we are talking about here is that if I happen to have these two views again, these are the same ones that I showed before, so I have some kind of structural view and I made some kind of representation of the types that I can use in all the views, but maybe this is the representation of only of the types in this view. There has to be some correspondence, right? It should be about the same thing. And how I can actually find out is that I, can, I should be able to take any of those things, like, well, there seems to be something called our service. Great, that 
according to this relationship is a component, well, there seems to be type our service used at least throughout my diagram, and they seem to be all components. So at least this seems to be quite fine. Uh, and the fun thing here is that you have to understand how much you specify. Because you can either specify too little, or you can specify too much. Uh, for example, I mean, if this would be a normal OO analysis model or conceptual model, most people would use multiplicities, right? So I might be tempted to say something that I really don't mean. Because I mean, at least here, how this has been drawn, like let's see the event bus. There seems to be, oh, okay, so each, Event bus has a reply port and request port. What would be the multiplicities for this? Everybody has done object-oriented analysis, right? Please say yes. Good. Uh, so, I mean, here, as at, at least how we've drawn it, there seems to be that there can be one service, and the other side you can have multiple services. So at least it can't be one-to-one. -one. If I draw it like this, if it would be one-to-one, -one, then I might be tempted to draw two different ports on that side. So there's a clear correspondence between when you move multiple pictures, you have to understand how they connect to each other, are they consistent, and what should you model? How much detail should I put here? So when you do things that are not, things like type architecture constraints, you need to put only those things that you want to constrain about. Not to be carried away, just, ah, let's, let's do more modeling. Basically, what you need to do is, is to model all of the things that are relevant. Good. Uh, and the other thing is that if, if you take most of the books, uh, they talk about architecture documentation, basically. Part of them talk about design in a sense that if I have this problem, what pattern would I choose? Uh, but in real life, I think most of the current architecture work is, is, is done about target architectures. Which means that you have existing system which has some architecture, but what you are really interested about is the next evolution. How should this system look like in the future? And normally you might actually make a number of target architectures. Or you might make a target architecture for five years, and then you make a plan how to get there. Um, and in that context, you are actually thinking of basically prioritizing the new requirements. You are trying to find what are the new, really valuable requirements for your system, what are the emerging needs that are coming up, and does it fit to my existing architecture? And for this reason, you might want to use something like um, architecture analysis, architecture validation, and, and think about how can we change this existing architecture so it will fit those requirements in the future. Okay, what I'm now planning to do is plan to do a small exercise about one possible architectural view that we didn't that much discuss yet. It's about dependencies. So if you have any structure, they will have some dependencies. Uh, rarely you design a 
I mean subsystems that doesn't communicate with each other, right? So they will call, they make a function call, they send a message, whatever. They might share data, and that will create dependencies between those subsystems. It has a major impact. And now that actually brings to things that you need to understand that if you have a concern like reusability, testability, you have to do distributed development, you have to know how I can check whether my system or my planned system or my target architecture will satisfy these requirements. So you have to find a way to represent reason about your architecture. And one possible option in those concerns, if you're interested in especially testability and reusability, concerns is to think about dependencies between your architectural elements. Uh, and these are some possible questions that you might have in your mind. Especially if you have some people, how should I organize them? So what kind of system can be reused? How, how in the world will we integrate this? How we will we test it? Can we, can we frequently test it? Is it easy to test? Um, and many of the questions, as you can see, might be beyond the actual product qualities. So it's not about how I satisfy the performance, but how it represents the organization, how we'll test it, things like that. Okay. Okay. Um, and again, the question, as I talked before, was that you can, again, you always have to distinguish between are you talking about actual dependencies? Is this a representation of your software, or is this the allowed, allowed dependencies within that software? There's a difference. So is this a plan, or is this a documentation what you got? Um, and there are other things that you think have to be in there. And the most common form of these dependency views that we'll see is the boxes and arrows. Ta-da! So, question is, Find five critical problems in the figure. Identify under unwanted dependencies and explain why this is problematic. Normally I deal this with a quite extended time, like 15 minutes, but because we are closing in 15 minutes, now you also, everybody has about one, two minutes. Think about this and just pick somebody, or if you are really, really lonely person you might be yourself, but you have to think about one to two different problems in this picture. And then we collect them. This is the picture. Boxes and arrows. Great. Time starts now. You can discuss with each other if you like.
all sorted up. Brilliant. Let's start with somebody with a striped shirt. How many do we have? Do you got? You got at least. Did you got one? What could be a problem? Doesn't group. So you mean that what you like to see in this kind of picture, oops, is that there would be groups within groups. So there would be internal structure. Okay. Well, as I said, I mean, there can be different kinds of views. Some of them might not have shown internal structure. Uh, what I liked about showing internal structure normally is that when you have to think about of you have one large element and you have to think about how the communication from outside actually terminates within the internal components. That's when you, when it's the most useful. Um, so could it help? Yeah, definitely. It especially would help to understand what those elements are. But there are some things that you might want to do without that information. Next person. Volunteers? Circle of dependency. Okay, good. Where you find one? Well, for instance, fire estimation to user data management and fire detection to fire estimation. So basically this route. Yeah. yeah. Good. That's a possible good problem. Any circular dependency in almost most of the forms will always create problems. That's a good, I mean, very generic heuristic that you use. Any of the white shirts? I think you represent gray or the Olympic theme. White ones? Over there. You there. No idea. No problems. You like it. Let's go for it. Let's build it. Any concrete or meta problems? Why you are confused? Why it's neither good or bad? No idea. Okay. I'm wondering why the arrows are overlapping because you can draw the picture without overlapping arrows. Uh, by overlapping, you mean what? They cross each other. Ah, okay. So you mean this, yeah. this and that. I'm wondering about that. Okay. So if you would turn that, could you? Ah, oh, yeah, you could. Well. I think it's, that's because of me. I just happened to draw it like that. But yes, you could draw it like uh, without the overlapping arrows. But on the other hand, um, if we assume that they don't represent anything special, it's just how it's drawn, then it's, well, it might be prevent understandability a little bit, but still, it shouldn't be a major problem, right? I'm wondering why fire detection depends on the user data management. That's a good question. I mean, that's something that I would also assume is that what is that user data that you need to detect fires, right? Yeah, yeah it's, it's at, at least it's something that you can't immediately understand. So it's a good problem. Anything else? 
Yeah, well, they seem to be for two ways. That's another good point. So basically, if you have connections for both ways, what it actually says is somehow these things are very heavily connected to each other. So they, they're almost so connected that it, it's at least hard to understand how you could do one without another. That's a potential problem. So in, of course, if, it would be simpler if everything would be a direct acyclic graph, right? Anything else? Ah, uh -uh, there's, one, by the way, one more. Any other problems? Are we done? Are we happy? Any other person with the bottles? You there. You're two of you. Yes, you must have a good idea. What? I know. You don't know, but these guys here. Great point. So especially if you, if you think about this element, they seem to depend on the same things. So you would consider that there's ability for the fire estimation to get everything else that it needs as a data except the detection part. And then you, of course, can ask the question, what kind of, if you want to estimate things, do you need detection data? Well. In a sense, if you want to estimate, yes, it's, there's a fire when the fire has started. In that sense, yes, but on any other sense, well, at least it's a potential problem. Excellent. So what you can actually say is that there are some things that you could at, at least think about without having no information at all, basically, on the system. Um, so basically, you can find things that are, are they acyclic de dependencies? Are they heavily dependent on both directions? Are they weird connections based on the titles? But of course, you can't validate this because I didn't actually tell you what those elements are. So you need to know, you preferably would like to know things like, what is that type of dependency? What is that element? Is it the subsystem? Is it the organizational unit? What is it? You need to know, understand what those dependencies are because you could easily say that, well, it was uses. No, it was provides. Maybe it wasn't dependency at all. Maybe it shows containment. Then if both contain each other, that would be clearly a problem. Maybe it says that must be implemented before. It might be prioritization. It can be anything. So normally, when you see it just a picture, that should be your first thing to understand what those elements are what they mean, what they really mean, how they connect to each other. But on the other hand, you can see that there are a lot of kind of heuristics, intuition kind of things that you can easily do even without knowing anything about those elements. So that's always what you have. There's some uh, that you have to combine. You have to combine very systematic way to define what those people try to communicate, what the elements are, and also combine heuristics and intuition about uh, both how and and when is especially when you know what those types are, then you have much stronger forms of of intuition and heuristic. Especially because there are certain types of dependencies where there are known um, things that you can validate if you have those types. Um, if you would go to the extended uh, 
uh, courses, you will actually learn them. Uh, and now I just want to give you two possibilities. So one would be actually defined then a uses dependency or notifies dependencies. And again, the types of those dependencies between those elements depends on what you try to validate. And this is a possible type, especially if you want to validate testability, portability of your system. I'm not going to go to a deep, but I just want to show you that you, that would be a possible um, dependency structure. And those types were defined in the slides. I think you will share them, I guess. So you can actually read them if you like. But basically, having, adding the types to dependencies, adding the types to the elements will give you more information. You can do different validation, especially in this case, the, how we define the uses is this is like a procedure, procedure call, function call, right? So you actually use a other component. Notify means that message passing in a sense that you don't wait for reply. So I send you a message and I'm not care whether that message will ever be received, right? So it's a much weaker form. And why these tools have been chosen is that if you happen to be interested in testability, for notify relationships, you can, the stub is enough. So if you have a place to send a message, it doesn't have to contain any code. It just has to accept that there's no error and you can test it. And that's beautiful. But if you have a user's relationship, what you need, you need the code because the internal working of your system depends on how it replies. And this is just an example if you're interested in testability. It has implication of reusability and other things, but basically what we are talking about, you need to understand your requirements. You need to find out a way to validate or represent or communicate how your system will fulfill those key requirements. You have to draw some kind of picture that makes it perfectly clear that this is the case. And that's what the architecture design is. Not more than that. And the, my personal, um, when I try to communicate what you want to document is that it's completely different what you normally do in school, on university, or anywhere else. If you go to a test, you want to hide the things you don't know, right? If you write the essay, if you don't know about things, you normally write around it in such a diplomatic words that nobody finds out that you have absolutely no clue when the, what is the Finnish Independence Day, right? You don't know it, you don't mention it. Architecture design document is completely the opposite. It's the document where you say, I don't, I mean, I think this will not scale. I know it will scale for 500 users, but it will not scale to 1500. Architecture design document is your get out of jail card. It's the thing that you bring to a review. You say to everybody, for these aspects, this is really bad architecture. And if they still approve, next time, when you will have the 16,000 user and your system will fail, there will be somebody from management will go say that you are the worst architect I've ever seen. But then you bring out your get out of jail card that shows that, well, I said it. I knew it will not, it, I knew it will fail. And that's what I said. So actually, software architecture document is a document where you 
show not only what it can do, but even more importantly, what it can't do. And that should be the mindset when you actually do it. All right, any questions? I didn't ask the pink shirts, but you're not forced to ask questions anymore. Okay, thank you. Right, let's give a round of applause to our guests. Yeah.